Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Germany has recently changed decisively its traditional post-World War II foreign and defense policy. In particular, it has agreed to substantially raise its military spending, as well as to give substantial weaponry to the Ukrainians to assist them to defend themselves. Recently installed Chancellor Olaf Scholz called it a Zeitenwende, a watershed, or maybe more literally, an epical transformation. It's been noted that this watershed development has also taken place with three women in the top security and defense jobs in the new German government. At defense with Christine Lambrecht, foreign affairs, Annalena Baerbach, and interior affairs minister Faeser. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Metin Hakverdi, a social democratic member of the German Bundestag since 2013. He serves on the Budget Committee and the Committee on European Union Affairs. He's a lawyer who studied at both Indiana University here in the U.S. and Christian Albrecht's University in Kiel. Before attending university, he also went to high school in Simi Valley, California. So, of course, he knows the United States very well. Thanks for joining us today, Metin Hakverdi. Hi. Hi, John. Good to be here. Great to have you with us. So, as I noted in the introduction, uh, and as many of our listeners know, Germany has undergone a striking transformation in its uh, defense and foreign policy in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this so-called Zeitenwende. Can you explain what happened and why it's so significant? On Thursday, February 24th, the Russian forces attacked the, the Ukraine weeks before this big military muscle-up was, was performed. So uh, it, was a, uh, it was a public situation, so everybody was talking about the situation. The Munich Security Conference took, part, uh, took place uh, just the weekend before the attack. So the, the situation was really um, tense and, and being debated how to react on it. So before the attack, there was a public debate also in Germany about sanctions, about weapon delivery already. Um, and the, the German government was not delivering weapons before the attack on Thursday, the 24th of February, while other governments, as the United States and the United Kingdom, did so. So then, how should I say this? Then it happened. Then the real bad thing, and this is the occasion of today, the catastrophe happened, uh, because it is a catastrophe for what happens in, in, in the Ukraine up to today. Uh, the attack happened, and that changed a lot within the government, but also within the German society um, as in reaction to that attack. Um, And this 
uh, on sh on a short term notice was the Sunday after the attack. That was February 27th. Was a special uh, special session of the German Bundestag where Olaf Scholz held his Regierungsansprache. It's not a State of the Union, but it's a, it's a special occasion speech um, where he announced this program of five points, where probably we get into details on those five, um, which were all very much a change in our foreign policy and security policy that we are, as Germans, traditionally focused on and bind to, but also for social democrats particularly. And don't forget, John, uh, we had a special situation before this military buildup, before the attack, by just having a new government with a Social Democrat as chancellor and with this uh, three-party coalition, the so-called traffic light coalition of the Green Party, the Liberals, and us, the Social Democrats. Um, so this all culminated in this in this one in this one week of the attack itself, decision making and announcing it also publicly. Right. So, I mean, you've made a couple of points that I want to follow up on. Uh, one is, you know, again, the sort of significance of this, you know, Zeitenwende, this, this transformation of Germany's defense and foreign policy uh, posture. Uh, it really is a sea change from the, you know, long time pacifistic leaning, shall we say, of the post-war federal republic. I mean, at least since, you know, the joining NATO and rearmament, um, you know, on the whole, Germany has been seen as a kind of questionable partner for some of these things, certainly by elements of the United States foreign policy, uh, bureaucracy and establishment. Um, so, so one question here is really, you know, what do the German people think of this? I mean, you know, Schultz uh, announced this somewhat out of the blue. You know, I don't know that I think there has been or was no real preparation of the public uh, for a shift of this kind. What was the sort of significance of this shift, um, you know, in terms of the history of the Federal Republic since World War II? And, you know, the extent to which the public is really uh, behind this or on board for it. John, just to be real frank on this one, this process has not been, has not ended yet. It is a long-term development within German society, within the center-left parties generally, but also, of course, for the Social Democrats after World War II. It is just a special focus point, um, but it has not, the process is not finished now. It, I would argue it just started. <laughs> um, so um, uh, others would describe it as uh, as a reality check um, because such a bad thing happened on the on the eastern borders of the European Union that uh, that Germany just couldn't afford anymore this this position of of the old times uh, after World War II as, as you described it. I don't think it's a it's either one or the other. I think it's a process. I think it's a process. We we've described this process probably you know I know you know. Um, as a growing up of Germany becoming a mature player of in international affairs, so there are occasions in growing up where you grew up, where you grow up a little faster than the other weeks and years of your of your childhood and and your when, when you are a, a young adult. Um, so this week, the last week of February was one where Germany was growing was getting older. A lot faster than the years before. Um, so there is still, of course, this old pacifistic um, root within German society. Of course, there is still a, a, I would say, ideology of 
uh, pulling out of conflict uh, because of our history. And it's still all the, uh, I would say, anti-Cold War reflect, reflections on if, if, if we go into a conflict, if we try actively to do something, we provoke a, a arms race, a polarization. That's all there still. But there is a development in the general population, also in, in the Social Democratic Party, but also in other parts of society, that this idea, I would say a more passive idea, I'm not saying pacifistic, but passive idea of policymaking uh, is just not up to the challenge of, of our time. Um, and we had this debate before, um, but obviously there was a good, in 2014 when Crimea got attacked, you could have asked all those questions already. Um, why would you continue on Nord Stream 2 after after the attack on Crimea in 2014? So there has been there have been steps before um, which culminated in this in this one moment attacking Ukraine, where the turning point was of no, we have to get active. And if you look at all those five points in the speech, uh, before we come to this one billion euro uh, military spending budget, um, look at the other five points. Uh, the one is the economic, the, the energy economic issue uh, to getting to get uh, um, independent in the future of energy deliveries from from Russia, uh, being more being more independent by uh, not only from from importing energy but also producing energy uh, in a more uh, in a more ecological way to do as 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 it was the idea before the attack, but speeding that up. It is the idea of protecting the eastern flank of NATO, protecting Poland, protecting the Baltic states, protecting Romania and others um, very actively with more troops. It is the sanction regime of putting pressure, putting in those sanctions. Maybe Americans are not aware of, of how tough the sanctions are on Russia at this point. We are putting, there's never been a case, even the Iranian case, um, there's never been a case in international sanctioning to put so severe sanctions on a nation that what we've done now, and with the consensus of Germany uh, to do so. And then there's, of course, the fourth part, which is also what uh, was disputed before this attack, is the support of the, the state of Ukraine itself by weapon delivery. So those are the four points. And then we come to what probably most American friends would regard as Zeitenwende, is that we're having a Sondervermögen, a special budget plan to, to spend 100 billion uh, euros on defense. But that's just one part of the five. You have to see the whole picture of, 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 of realizing that the new world um, has already started before, but now we see that we, have to, that we have to catch up in dealing with that. And it is a process, I can tell you, I can, t I can give you a report on talking to older Germans, uh, older Germans that were either born before 45 or just right after, with with the with the the, the special point of of German identity of the end of World War II and this nie wieder, uh, never again um, principle. How it's important what they think and what they feel if you want to describe this change in in German society. It's not that young people, uh, younger folks, maybe are a little more easy on this one. Uh, but this, this, this generation that grew up without a war, but w that were around with, with their parents basically being dominated by the experiences of the war. 
and what happened before. And these, this, this generation of Germans, they, they were reminded by the pictures of Mariupol, by the pictures of Kharkiv, of what happened in World War II. And for them, it, the, this pacifistic answer we, we had, we, mo a lot of people gave before the last 60 or 70 years, they had a really, I would say, sound feeling. It's a feeling, it's an emotional thing, that this answer is not sufficient enough if you see what happens to, to Ukrainian cities. And don't forget, John, this is an important issue as well. So the refugees, if you, if you hang out at the Hauptbahnhof in Berlin today, you will see uh, at least 10, if not 11,000 refugees from Ukraine just not only in the, not in the capital, but just the Hauptbahnhof, just one train station arriving there per day. Um, so we see the results of this war. And this all combined made this big change, which Olaf Scholz managed to, to put in this one speech. Yes. Well, I mean, I think what you've described is what we nowadays call a wake-up call. And uh, obviously, this was a wake-up call for, you know, a whole generation, two generations of Germans who you know, lived with the legacy of World War II. And the, the, the lesson from that was, you know, nie wieder Krieg, no, no war ever again, essentially. Uh, but as you say, I mean, that posture has been, you know, criticized for a long time in the past, not just uh, with regard to the Germans, but also with regard to Europeans more generally, that they've, you know, sort of been able to enjoy the security of of the United States uh, and to put their you know money into into butter rather than guns and and these kinds social of social welfare system a very yeah, good social welfare system yeah these kinds of uh, controversies but I think it's been a wake up call for the Germans but you could also say that it's kind of the end of the end of history right I mean that we've also seen a kind of wake up call for the West and a lot of people have been struck by the degree to which the West has you know, the, the West in the form at least of NATO. Um, has pulled together and, uh, you know, seen this as a kind of common and, and galvanizing challenge. Um, I mean, do you see that happening? Is, I'm not sure whether I understood your question. Galvanizing for the West itself? For the West itself. I mean, in other words, when, when I, you know, uh, I refer to Francis Fukuyama's famous, uh, you know, essay and book on the end of history, which was, you know, soon challenged by Samuel Huntington's notion of the clash of civilizations. And, you know, I think the galvanization through the Ukraine war of the West is also leading to suggestions that there's a kind of, that, that Huntington's time, if it, you know, hasn't been before, it's arrived now in a certain sense. And that there's this, you know, kind of global um, face-off between democracy and autocracy or authoritarianism or something like that. Um, um, and of course, you know, China is obviously a big part of this uh, part of the discussion. So I just wonder how you, you know, read that. Do you think that's really what's going on? Okay, that's a big policy question now. Okay, um, right now, there is obviously a, a, a standing together, you say galvanization of the West. And I have to think about when was the last time we, that the West was at, you know, probably, uh, in the first uh, Iraqi war, when Kuwait was invited, uh, invaded, um, and th this this big UN effort uh, to free Kuwait, that maybe that one. I don't know whether that, but but the West at this point, um, 
if you look how NATO um, reacted, if you look at, you know, we have our issues with Poland within the European Union, as you, as you know. Um, so we had our issues with refugees in 2015, 2016 within the European Union. We had our issues with the energy policy of importing so much gas. Not, and it's, by the way, it's not just Germany. It is also other countries like, like, uh, like uh, Portugal or Italy and others. Um, so we had all those issues before where uh, you say galvanization, I would say where, where compromising was very complex, like always in the European Union. And then you know what? Brexit happened also. That, that's not a, a real good prerequisite for, for dealing with big crises. And of course, uh, uh, having Donald Trump as U.S. president doesn't really help to build up trust for the end of time between uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. So in spite of all of these issues, the answer was impressive, impressive, I believe, for everybody in Moscow, but also very impressive for the government in, in Beijing, obviously, because I'm surprised by the reaction of the West. So they are probably even more surprised. Whether this will be a new, I would say, tool uh, in this time after the end and end of time, as you his end of history, as you 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 describe it. I don't know. Let's see how this works out. As long as the attack is continuing in in Ukraine, I'm pretty convinced that uh, that as what we call West will be sticking together. At this point, it's more than the West. At this point, if you look at the United Nations, if you look at at the global uh, community, it's more than just the West. But if it's if it turns out to be a a situation where on one on the one side liberal open societies are defending each other um, and on the other side authoritarian regimes try to try to accomplish something where I'm at least me I'm having problems describing it if it's just an imperialistic attitude if it's just an historic uh, historic uh, goal that mr. Putin just just tries to to put in reality, whether it is a psychological disposition, I don't understand. Uh, but doing bad things by attacking big countries and killing a lot of people and uh, letting all those people flee and destroying cities, um, then it could be a good moment for, for us, the West, to ask ourselves, okay, why are we the West? Why are we different? Uh, on what, are, what are our standards? And uh, do we have a, a vision do we have a, a goal in the future which is more than just reacting on those bad guys? But maybe we're having an issue. A mil militaries would say, do, should, we, should we put the pressure points on the others and not reacting? But uh, I don't want to share that, that, that nomenclature at this point. But, but thinking of what we are, what we can do, and what we want for the future. And obviously, that questions are immediately asked about the future of Ukraine. Obviously, um, obviously, um, but there are other countries as well. Think of Georgia, uh, think of Moldova, think of the a lot of countries on the African continent. Think of this 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 global this global uh, competition between China and the U.S. about I would say third countries um, um, and the competition about pulling them into your in, in your own system. Uh, what is it, what we have to offer? What what is the West has to offer um, a a not so well doing economy on the African continent? So is there anything but just making money for our companies? 
And that's a good time to ask those questions, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And, you know, I presume the shift of 100 billion euros by the German government towards its defense budget is going to make a difference. I mean, this reminds me, I, I don't mean to offend, but uh, the, the joke comes from Zbigniew Brzezinski, who wrote a book a few years ago in which he said he thought Europe's highest political aspiration was to become the world's most comfortable retirement home. And the question is whether or not, you know, whether he was right, perhaps, but also, you know, insofar as we've talked already about, you know, the development of these social welfare states in the post-war period, you know, is this shift in sensibility and in policy going to affect that? It must. Because things outside Europe are happening. So it's not a matter of choice. So it will happen. The question is how we are reacting. And, you know, I'm not happy uh, that we are spending $100 billion uh, euros on, on, on military. So th- th- you, you'd have got, couldn't have a lot of things being done with that money instead. Um, but I, I see that the world is changing around us, that it has been in, move- in movement before the attack. And uh, it's a reality check. You said it's a wake-up call. There were several wake-up calls before, to be honest. Um, so it is a matter of, of taking the responsibility of not only taking care of your own security, and security is more than just defending a, a territory. It is also a question of, of restoring economic power, social welfare, uh, the good for the people, but also to have an influence outside your territory, which is a very, very difficult issue for Germans to think about, a super difficult issue. Uh, to have an influence outside your own territory. Maybe by selling cars, that's okay, but having a security policy towards outside your territory is for historic reasons super complex. But this has changed now, and it's good that it has changed because um, if we don't, and we as not as Germans, we as the West, if we don't, if we are not making progress fast within those next years or so, Others will take will will do things um, as we've just seen in this case. So um, I'm I'm not really happy. Um, the occasion is awful, but it is good that Germany, as a super big player, and don't don't forget that it's the biggest economy in Europe. Um, if we are doing what we have been, what we were, what we are committing ourselves to now in this process, we will end up having a uh, not only by numbers, um, a big military, but also in the mindset of the population being willing in combination with diplomacy, with sanctions, with economic ties to, to take the responsibility, take, or taking the fact that we know that we are also responsible for things that happen outside our country. And that doesn't make us to, uh, what do you say, re- retirement place? Florida? Is that, is that the... The weather is not as well, the weather is different in Florida, I would say. But um, and this is very challenging. This is very this will be very challenging for for European policymakers, for for German policymakers in the future. Uh, it sounds all very sound today because there is this war in Ukraine. But there will be a time after this war. I hope there, I hope sooner than later. Then the discussion will be. 
a little more difficult and a little more differentiated in the political sphere, not only in Germany, but also between allies. So what we should promise ourselves together now is don't forget February 24th, 2022. Never forget that moment for the struggles we have within our camp in the future. And you know, there will be a lot of struggles because all the other issues I just mentioned, they're still around. Hungary is still a problem in the European Union. Poland will be a problem. Uh, Refugees worldwide is a problem. And of course, I have no idea how your presidential elections, what they will bring your folks, but also the world. But this focus point, we forgot about what happened in, in Georgia in 2008. We basically want to, we wanted to forget what happened in 2014 to Crimea. We wanted to forget. <laughs> so we can just continue our business as usual. And I would say after this February, we, we have to assure ourselves that there will be no going back before this end of February. And of course, Germany and the German government has a particular responsibility um, because we, we were... I'm not saying we were in the way of this development, but we had, for good reasons in the, of our history, we had good reasons to move slower than others, the latest. And, you know, I, I find that, for me as a German, I find it cool that we were the last country, more or less, to to deliver weapons to Ukraine, as, as being a German. But you know what? Then I see the pictures of Mariupol and I think, we should have delivered earlier. Come on. This is, of course, it's my history, but they are, they are now, they are dying. Um, so growing up and international responsibility is always difficult, but especially for Germans. Um, but I think uh, this was a, the occasion is awful, wake up call. Um, the poor Ukrainians, um, I've no, I, I hope this will end a, in, a, in a way that most people would believe in a future of the country, I hope at least. Well, I mean, this brings us to an important question, which is, you know, whether or how this war might end. And I have to say, I've been listening to fairly depressing, dispiriting kind of uh, assessments about what's likely to happen in the near future, uh, partially because of the, you know, ironically, partially because of the successes of the Ukrainians in defending themselves, uh, that there's a there few Few, a week or so ago, the buzzword, it seems to me, was stalemate. Now, increasingly, it's sort of more in the quagmire direction. Um, but in any case, it seems to foretell, you know, months uh, ahead of us of, of carnage and destruction, and which is obviously horrifying to contemplate. Uh, and of course, one wants to bring this conflict to an end as quickly as possible. There are a lot of doubts about whether Vladimir Putin, you know, ha- shares that interest, and whether the ne- therefore the negotiations are uh, at all really worth paying attention to at this point. And you know, there are questions. I was just listening to another discussion from the Atlantic Council, um, you know, about what the Ukrainians themselves would be prepared to accept as terms, you know under which they're prepared, they'd be prepared to put an end to their own resistance. Uh, so I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I mean, what the likely outcome of this might be. I mean, obviously the terms tend to be revolve around the idea of neutrality for Ukraine, uh, you know, giving up 
the parts of uh, the country that had already been, you know, occupied by separatist forces, something along those lines, which alas, you know, might have been achieved, in fact, before any shelling started, before any invasion, because those were on the table really before February 24th. Um, So this, of course, gets into questions of, you know, what actually led Putin to do this, whether it was a miscalculation or not. Some have questioned whether he really miscalculated, as many people have said. So anyway, a lot of questions there around, you know, how is this likely to end and what terms do you think might, you know, bring it to a close sooner rather than later? Difficult questions. Um, the hope is to bring it to an end very as soon as possible. But not only as Germans, but as, as the West, as as the coalition that supports the, the fight on the Ukrainian side at this point, we have to be very, very difficult not to be in the position to put pressure on a Ukrainian government, any Ukrainian government, to to put an end to this for our terms and not their terms. So it's 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 their, they have to bargain about this. The negotiations are are led by Ukrainians and not by Germans or Americans. So, but obviously, um, if we are talking about the territorial integrity, about security, a system of security of the um, of the future of Ukraine, but maybe the new secure a new security architecture of Europe as a whole. Um, obviously, it's not only a question of what the Ukrainian government wants, but also what other global players want. So, all the questions are on the table about EU membership. NATO membership, sovereignty as as a general concept, a question of of uh, territorial sovereignty as what parts of the country uh, are supposed to be uh, under the authority of an Ukrainian government. So, very very difficult questions. And on top is the most important, the most difficult question is what what's in the head of Mr. Putin. So what what was the what was the what was the the process? On his side, to start the war, you have to know that if you want to make a, uh, if, if, if you want to foresee under what circumstance he would end the war. I, I believe that the Zeitenwende is not only a process within the German government and German society. It is just a reflection that things are changing on the planet. Um, you talk about China, it's not only China. If I make this as, as clear as possible. If we don't manage to get out of this conflict without the impression worldwide that you would be, have to be just more powerful than your neighbor, and then it's in your power to, to move borders of sovereign states. If this impression will be the result of this process, it will be hell for us. It will be the worst of all worlds. It will be not the end of a war. It will be the beginning of a lot of wars. So we have to take this into account that the Ukrainians are telling the story, which is true in parts, that we are defending democracy for all our countries there. It is, if you look at the reaction of Asian countries, neighboring countries of China, they are looking very, very closely what's happening there. Um, we have, we are already defending a world order of of rule-based order, sovereign states, 
Um, so those are this is above this issue of of negotiating a, a peace or a ceasefire process in Ukraine. So a lot of super important issues are on the table, and I think it would be a mistake to compromise on either one of them so so severely that there's nothing left of these issues I just mentioned. But in the center, I'm from Germany. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm traveling to the US. My, um, I have a house in Hamburg where I live in and it's not destroyed. So it's easy for me. At this point, the security and the, and the territorial integrity of Ukraine is the most important issue. And it's awful. And it's awful. What the Russian government has decided Maybe that's why so many were surprised by this attack because we just couldn't, we want, we did not want to live in that reality that something like this would be possible. That's why we psychologically ruled it out that it could happen because it's so bad. It just causes so many problems. If you think this to an end, you would think of what's the future of the Russian society and the Russian government also, which is, could be connected to that. So very big issues, but um, the jungle is out there if we don't watch out for, for compromising on those deals after wars. Um, and it's not only between uh, Russia and NATO and Europe, it's, it's in Asia, it's in Africa. If you, look at, if you look at the speech of the Kenyan ambassador to the, to the UN after the attack and the Security Council, you, you could feel it. They are in African nations, with all the differences between them, they are super scared that they are entering a historic moment where borders are changed through force because they know what that would mean to their continent. Um, we have to do everything to prevent that and at the same time protect the interest of the government of Ukraine and also every single individual, every single citizen of Ukraine because they are the victims of this attack. And this, this will be very difficult. And, you, and maybe just one last thought on that. It will not all be done with one big deal. It will be a process. It will be a process with a lot of deals, maybe inside NATO, maybe between NATO and others, the Russian federations, security issues. Uh, that what we tried with, the, with, this, um, with a security system after the Soviet Union collapsed of of um, of uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Belarus, and 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 Ukraine basically giving up their nuclear weapons and becoming normal states, which we see now they are not. But that was at, at least the attempt to do so. Was back then the idea was in in, in theory super super good. Uh, the idea was to have a internationalized security system for those countries to put a stability, peace, and sovereign identity to those, and then having a normal future without war, and even without a Cold War, even without putting a lot of money into, into the military and spending that money for, for the uh, prospects of, of their people. And the, the most frustrating thing right now besides the damage that is being doing, done now for, to Ukraine and the population of Ukraine, is that this process has come to an end, that we will have to build up, we have to set up a new process, and it will take every single one of us. It will take 
Germany, Western Europe, the United States. It will take Canada, maybe Japan, and maybe Australia, the Russian Federation, China, maybe Saudi Arabia, Turkey, who knows. We had a super good idea in the past to internationalize this, this, this post-Cold War process. We didn't really fail, but we have a big pushback at this point, and we have to deal with it. So this will be a this will take a longer time in in conferencing, talking, negotiating, and while we are doing this, this will have a an impact on our populations in Russia, in Ukraine, in a American presidential election, and also in the European Union and and elections in their member states. So this will be a a interesting time the next. Uh, years to come. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I think that's a very thoughtful kind of reflection on the situation in which we find ourselves. Uh, it feels a little bit like, you know, building a new airplane while somebody's holding a gun to your head. That's sort of the situation I think that we find ourselves in. And I want to thank Metin Hakverdi of the German Bundestag for sharing his insights about developments in Germany and beyond in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. I especially want to thank Steve Sokol and the American Council on Germany for helping us make this interview possible. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.